0: Hello everyone, my name is Vanessa Menendez-Covello and this is the Fresh Needle podcast where I interview fresh graduates and acupuncture students from all over the world and we discuss their experiences as students or running their own clinics, particularly in these very weird times of COVID-19. I want to tell you about an amazing opportunity that is opening up for new graduates who are looking to build their acupuncture practice. Nava Karman is a leading acupuncturist and herbalist specializing in fertility, gynecology, and the immune system. She has run the fertility support company for over 20 years. Nava is launching a new mastermind group exclusively for new graduates. This mastermind group will meet every two weeks to provide mentoring, guidance, and inspiration, and will focus on clinical skills and the practicalities of building a business. This will be a close-knit group of practitioners who will work together for a year to develop the skills and habits required to be clinically effective and financially successful. I recently did a session with Nava, and what I liked the most about it is how safe I felt about discussing my fears and worries. I came out of it with a list of very practical, achievable steps to implement change. There are only six places in the group, so you need to apply quickly. Go to www.fertilitysupport.expert/graduate. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Fresh Needle podcast. My name is Vanessa Menéndez Covelo, and today I am speaking with Abbas Miaín. Abbas is a very senior acupuncturist who has also held academic positions, starting with a degree in biological chemistry and cell biology, He graduated in acupuncture from the University of Westminster and later became the head of biomedical sciences in the acupuncture studies program at London South Bank University. On top of this, he is the owner and lead acupuncturist at Seven Heavens Clinic in Finsbury Park, a clinic of integrated medicine, tai chi and qigong. He's also the vice chairman of the Wuxi Tai Chi and Qigong Association. Based in Finsbury Park, and he is the external examiner for Middlesex University in their acupuncture BSc. Welcome. Thank you for having me. So nice um, having you on the podcast, and I feel like right now I've totally butchered um, names and, and pronunciations. Is um, yeah, my Spanish no accent, pronunciation
1: was fantastic.
0: So, before we started um, recording the podcast, we were talking about how we are almost um, neighbors. You're based in Finsbury Park, I mean, Crouchend, just up the hill. Yeah, literally um, a bus ride away. And you were telling me that Crouchend was the place where um, Qigong started happening for you.
1: Yes, very, very much so. Um, so, we were talking about when I was approximately about 15, I, I was always interested in uh, martial arts as a young man. And I got kind of uh, interested in Tai Chi primarily because it was different. It stood out uh, from other martial arts predominantly because it's uh, unique in the way it's performed quite slowly, places a much greater emphasis on uh, meditation, which is quite strange when, as a young man, you just talk to hit things and not really think about things. Um, So it was something completely different, uh, and I decided to give it a go. You know, there was lots of boxing, lots of incredible martial arts in London at the time, um, but the idea of doing something which was considered to be more internal and viewed the body and martial arts in a different way, the idea of getting involved in something like that as a young man was very interesting, and that led me to find uh, my teacher, who is Michael Acton, who was teaching in community centres across Crouch End uh, and through studying Tai Chi, I became more aware of meridians and basic Chinese fundamental ideas. Being from an Indian heritage uh, and Asian cultural heritage, always grown up with the idea of energy and energetics as part of our culture, if you like. Um, but we, we don't talk about meridians the same way uh, in India talk more about chakras, for example. Um, So it was completely eye-opening to meet Michael. And most importantly, I I had profound experiences of being able to feel my energy as as a human being um, and its relationship with nature in and around Crouch Hent. And that spurred my curiosity. Uh, I was always into science. My original training was in biological chemistry and cell biology. So natural phenomenon, human body, was all something that I wanted to understand from Eastern perspective, from Western perspectives. And initially when I finished my degree, um, having spent a lot of time in the library reading journals and trudging through archives, and in the old days it wasn't paper copies, you know, you couldn't just type it into a database, you had to go and look through everything. I I occasionally stumble upon these random papers on acupuncture which were written in the early 80s, maybe first few studies uh, on acupuncture, and even though I was supposed to be reading about biochemistry, I just got sidetracked because I was like, in all the years of studying uh, biochemistry and cell biology and learning all these wonderful things, um, nobody had I never come across research which had come from an integrated perspective, or tried to look at the body, or compare Eastern and Western approaches to healthcare or anything like that. Um, and I just thought maybe it's quite obvious, being a second-generation immigrant from Asia, that why can't you have both? Like uh, same way I, you know, I carry every day, but I also eat fish and chips. So. It kind of spurred my curiosity. Uh, So having left university um, doing pretty much Western Orthodox science, um, I returned to London and decided to pursue an interest into finding out more about how would I go about doing any kind of integrated kind of activity, whether it be with Ayurvedic medicine or Chinese medicine. And the first thing that became obvious is that I was going to have to learn a lot more about Chinese medicine or Ayurvedic medicine. in order to have a balanced viewpoint, um, and that led me to get in touch with Westminster University and talk to them about uh, potentially studying Chinese medicine, and then pretty much instantaneously fell in love with acupuncture and massage and Tuina. And um, initially, my thoughts were is that I would perhaps stay more on the research side, but being in clinic as a student. Um, I very much realised that actually hands-on is where I want it to be very much. Um, so, I don't know, maybe after years of playing with Petri dishes, being yes. able to interact with human beings was a lot more rewarding <laughs> <laughs> and, and less spreadsheets. So it, it was win-win for me all round. Uh, better conversation uh, and, and less spreadsheets. So that ultimately, when I left Westminster, Um, I was just very happy to pursue getting my hands on patients and learning more about the medicine through experience as a clinician rather than burying my head in books. Um, And all of that time was supported by my journey as a a Tai Chi practitioner and my own journey, understanding my energy uh, through meditation and Qigong practice. Uh, So, yes, it did start in End.
0: It's fascinating because you've mentioned um, Ayurveda, which is um, another one of my interests. Because I used to go to Mysore in Karnataka for um, yoga studies. So I initially started with the yoga, but funnily enough, my first experience of acupuncture was there. Because what happened is a lot of the people that went there to study yoga. Um, had skills that allowed them to afford those trips. So there were a lot of body workers, a lot of acupuncturists um, affording their their visit to India doing acupuncture. And one thing that I find really interesting because I did my dissertation on on, on a a comparison between um, Ayurveda and TCM and something that came when I was doing all the research is that it seems to be now that the Indian government has decided to try to standardize the Ayurveda and to make it a global medicine the way that Chinese medicine has become. And I don't know if it's just that they saw TCM and thought, oh, you know, that's that's like become global quite nicely, or I don't know. No, I think,
1: I think it's a probably a good observation. I, I think that, you know, uh, Ayurvedic medicine is popular globally. In India, it's not really regulated or promoted uh, in many respects, even though it's everywhere. So it is promoted. But it's kind of, uh, I suppose, in certain states in India, you'll probably find it's uh, the standards and kind of are more consistent uh, across areas. Uh, due to standards of education being more consistent and also standards of uh, upkeep and so on and so forth, for what's expected. Uh, but almost anywhere in India you can walk into a village and find some basic treatment from a from a, from a guru or a hakeem or somebody who can do some basic body work uh, in the olden days. Um, but at the same time, if you go to places like in Mysore, which are a bit more kind of spa-orientated, yeah, the other standards can be very high and I think they have Uh, looked at how the Chinese system is more standardised. It varies much Mm. more in India from area to area, Uh, and of course China's huge as well. Chinese Western varies massively from region to region, Um, and in a way, in the standardisation is you're getting a kind of a dip in the pool of some of those flavours, and and then as you go on and learn more, you can explore later on. And the same is true for yoga as well. Yoga is not standardized in the way we teach it here in India at all, really. If you go to your average, if you go to your average ashram in India, you would feel completely, this is like a no yoga class I've ever been to in in Crouch End. You'd be lost, uh, completely lost. Uh, But that's also part of the charm of India is that and China is that, you know, it's kind of standardised but not standardised at the same yes. time. Um, you know, we have rules on the road, but everybody, not everybody kind of follows them. <laughs> uh, so
0: yeah, one of the things that I'm actually, um, I, I I have doubts about is uh, because I was looking at um, has there been contact in between, you know, the two systems. and. Here in, at least in London, what you see a lot of is um, yin yoga. So, yin yoga is a very slow style of yoga where you get into mostly supported laying down poses and you hold them for like, you know, five minutes. The idea is that you really get into the fascia and into those kind of tissues but they also talk a lot about meridians, about Chinese medicine meridians and I have to admit I've actually not looked into yin yoga a lot but I think it, it to me it seems interesting why would they mix in such a way instead of saying well, we're going to do Long hold poses, but we're going to work on the chakras. But somehow they talk about, you know, the meridians, and they talk about some poses for the kidney meridians and some poses for the living meridian. And I, yeah. I don't know.
1: So it's exactly the same as a modern acupuncturist, not talking about a meridian and just saying it does something to the nerves. It's right. you're you're applying a framework that you feel comfortable to to give insight into an experiential. Uh, practice. So I guess, you know, yin yoga largely comes from, funnily enough, acupuncturists who study yoga. Uh, And it's a very popular and a beautiful system, Um, like many of them are. They're they're all special in their own ways. But yes, you're right, the framework applied to understand some of the yoga and to take your practice deeper is actually coming from qigong and tai chi and Chinese medicine. It's not that those frameworks didn't necessarily exist in Ayurvedic medicine, it's just that they're not always, and the same is true in China of of the opposite, it's not always that easy to pick up all the bits and to be able to present Mm. them to your students and peers in a coherent way. Particularly true of, you know, our pioneers of acupuncture who brought back acupuncture to the West. You know, they brought back little chunks here and there, five element theory here, this, that, over Mm. there, and they shared what they could at that time. And to rationalise and understand what um, they were seeing and perceiving, and experiencing when they're teaching and working in clinic, they would sometimes uh, the same way we will use Western medicine and anatomy to understand what we feel when we palpate part of the body, but we'll also go to the meridians and see how they are. So I, th- I think it's a it's a natural evolution of uh, many acupuncturists traveling to India. And historically, is there a crossover to answer for my from? From what I've read over many years and talked to many people, in India and China, of course we're neighbors. It's, it's you know, Buddha went from India to, to China and he's, he settled in China and there he taught the five animal frolics, which were the early Qigong movements, which would have been early yoga, to the monks. And the monks then, over a period of many years, developed those postures, combining them with their postures from Chinese martial arts, uh, which were slightly different to yogic postures, both inspired by animals, but one with a different slant. Um, and that's where, if you like, the evolution of Tai Chi and Qigong started to be a little bit different to uh, what would have originally been taught to them by Buddha, by which, mm. which we know today as approximately, you know, the five animal frolics uh, amongst others. Uh, so early Qigong and yoga were probably incredibly similar. But also incredibly diverse practices. You know, you have sitting methods, lying methods, stretching, very dynamic. Some very more physical, some very more energetic and spiritual. Medicine-wise, herbs-wise, yeah, we traded everything from tea, language, culture. Okay. So it's it's normal to assume that uh, Ayurvedic theory and Chinese medical theory would have developed in some synchronicity at times, and some opposition at times. And Tibet is also interesting because in Tibetan medicine you see aspects of both. Mm. So you see the shamanism which is almost kind of unique but not unique because every culture has some aspect of shamanism still. But in the herbal side of things you see naturally, because Tibet is in the middle, little influences from China and India I believe. And then to make it more complex with the Silk Road you had Western herbal medicine coming with Alexander the Great into Asia, uh, which is influences. Those influences are still there today in parts of Pakistan and India. You can find people mixing Greek herbal medicine with Ayurvedic medicine. And it's just become normal. Incredible, really.
0: Yes. I have a friend, my friend, uh, Mark Singleton. We... um, we were, uh, we were living in Cambridge at the same time. And this was a period where it seems like a lot of the academic studies of the history of yoga were done by <laughs> white Western people. <laughs> so he ended writing a book called The Yoga Body, where his thesis, because this was his PhD thesis, um, was that a lot of the modern yoga postures came from the um, British Army. The British gymnastics that the, the British armies went and taught and um, I remember this, the poor guy so he wrote the book and at the beginning it was like this, is a, this was a great book but then he got absolutely roasted with issues of I don't know colonialism <laughs> and <laughs> cultural appropriation and in a way, I'm glad that I actually never really um, uh, had the time or the inclination to get into this, the, the studies of the history of yoga, because as a you know white Spanish woman, I <laughs> I, yeah, I don't have a, a lot to.
1: <laughs> it's incredibly interesting, but like like uh, any of these things, you find me two Indians who can agree on the history of yoga. <laughs> I, I think you'll struggle. There will be certain things that people will agree on but it historically has evolved in different areas uh, as well. But yeah, I think uh, it's fair to say the way I have seen yoga practiced uh, in the Indian subcontinent is different to how it's taught here uh, since, since, since we've known it in modern times, really. And there may be a variety of different influences for that reason, and also typically in Asia, a lot of the traditions, there were written traditions of history. There were oral traditions as well. And then of course, due to various different aspects, those bits of those history are missing. And it does make it a little bit difficult to patch together the history. But it's kind of typical that I'm not surprised it took a foreigner to kind of say, look, I'm really interested in this. I want to write this down. Because in India, they would all sit around over tea and Debate over it, but nobody would ever bother to write it down. Because <laughs> <Correct. laughs> yes. sometimes we wouldn't get past the debating bit and the samosas. Uh, yes. So, Fair enough. but yeah, it's incredibly interesting. And the same, the same debates occur in the Tai Chi and Qigong world. And mm-hmm. the reality is, is you know, in certain lineages, uh, the historical aspects are talked to disciples and sometimes were written down, usually quite commonly written down, but not always. Uh, So they were oral traditions as well. And they can not survive in intact ways. So where some people say for certain these movements came from this provenance, other people may disagree. Um, So even though it appears to be, there seems to be some agreement on certain things, there's still disagreement on on other things, really. and Master Lee, Grandmaster Lee, my grandmaster and teacher, um, my teacher's teacher, he used to say, you know, if you're looking for the answer, the answer's in the movement in the movement, not in the book.
0: Yes. So So, so coming coming to into acupuncture from having already an energetic practice Do you find, did you find that that gave you an edge? Did you find that when it came to palpation, when it came to finding the dirty, when it came to feeling where the points were, did that give you, you know, a bit of an advantage or? Yeah,
1: I guess so, yeah. I mean, it's hard to to say because it's your perceived uh, advantage, if you like. It's... But then when other of your peers often say to you, you, you know, it seems that you really need to get to Chi, it arrives in a particular way. Um, then you start thinking, well, is it because I'm doing something slightly differently? And in, if you're like in our traditional lineage, it's not a secret. It, it is you, your quality of touch, the way you connect with patients, your ability to sense Chi will be better if you practise. Because that's what it is. Uh, when you're practising qigong, you're practising uh, being sensitive to your own energy. If you can be sensitive to your own, you should be able to be sensitive to what's happening around you. In the context of being an acupuncturist, that could be the pulse, that could be palpating a channel, or just listening to somebody. Um, in the context of Tai Chi, we talk about pushing hands, having this soft quality of touching the, uh, your opponent's arms. And not resisting it with being forceful with it, and which is very different to other martial arts. Normally, as soon as you mm. touch the opponent, you tense up it and you want to do something. In Tai Chi, as soon as you touch somebody, you should maintain your structure but be relaxed and at the same time move in accordance with them. So thankfully, I had started that kind of practice when I was young. So in a way, I didn't know anything different. So right. I just did it with complete naivety and innocence, if you like. Um, I was learning as much as anybody else. But what I realized is is that if you keep poking the body like this with your finger, thinking on oh, mm-hmm. acupuncture point, eventually the patient or your practice partner is gonna tell you that they're feeding something just to get you to stop poking them. <laughs> it doesn't mean that you've achieved a level of practice yet. They just want you to stop poking. So if you, if you can achieve the same feedback, through a very gentle pressure, through using more your intention, Mm. then you can start to say, well, actually, yeah, I'm starting to feel like, actually, I can start to trust my sensations that I'm getting. You know, Mm. I can start to trust what I feel through this needle. I can start to trust that actually, yeah, I don't need to go any deeper into this meridian, Um, and so on.
0: Yeah, have you found then that when you are receiving acupuncture, um, you are more sensitive because it has been my experience as a, you know, person that practices yoga quite regularly that I'm really very, very sensitive to needles. And when I treat all my yoga friends, I have to use really fine needles as well. While a lot of my other patients are um, boxers and you have to use nails (laughs) on them because (laughs) otherwise they don't feel anything.
1: Yeah, I mean, firstly, they have a completely different musculature. So mm-hmm. you, you know, we're needling through fascia into off, often into muscles, um, and the nature of the musculature will will make that experience a little bit different. Um, obviously, the kind of guys who do a lot of martial arts, they have a different pain threshold. Everybody has a different pain threshold, uh, regardless mm-hmm. of size and physique. But the the way Master used to explain this was like, you know, if your body's already If you're working with your energy, if you're on a journey with your energy and your channels are slightly open through your practices, because your ability to connect to your own body and your sensations and that feedback is more uh, in tune, a bit like it is when we're young children, Hmm. because really that's what guides us as children is those intuitive feelings and feedback that we get from our body. We don't have the psychology and everything else going on between our ears to, to really interfere with that. So much like in yoga, they talk about unwinding, like, returning to that state. Uh, mm. Part of that, if you like, is that you feel things more. You feel things more from people you're around. You feel things more in treatments. You feel things more that you experience, uh, basically. So in from the context of treatments, yes, absolutely. Um, whether it be bodywork, whether it be needling. And yes, you can use finer needles. But uh, again, as you develop your practice, you'll be able to... Appreciate that people may be quite sensitive, and there's a way of interacting with a needle which enables you to not disturb their chi uh, as mm. much as you achieve dachi. And again, it's something I used to say to students a lot. You know, when you get dachi, it doesn't have to be this hugely violent sensation which floods the sympathetic nervous system with lots of stimulus, which then takes you a long time to calm down from. You know, yes, it can be. Good, good part of the treatment depending on what you're doing, what type of acupuncture and what kind of sensation you're going for uh, but you don't necessarily need to make somebody's hair stand on end. Uh, <laughs> it can be incredibly subtle too and can be achieved with you, you know rigorous manipulation, uh, high frequency manipulation, low amplitude, lots of different ways to achieve um, how or to stimulate people's energy in the way that you ultimately, as acupuncturists, what we are doing is moving people's chi, um as a fundamental way of interacting with their bodies. Um, so yes, it, it is my experience um, as well. But it's so weird because your experience is just that—it's yours, isn't it?
0: Yes. <laughs> yes, I, I, I think because you you touched on the on the, you know, at the end of the day, you need hours and hours of experience to refine your practice, and. This podcast is mostly aimed at acupuncture students or people that had graduated quite well recently, but like me. And what happened to me is that I started practicing, I think it was mid-October, and around February was when I was really getting into it. I was starting to get regular patients. I had steady influx of patients, and I was like, oh, you know, I'm, I'm starting to feel comfortable. And then we went into lockdown. And now we are coming out of the lockdown. I had maybe, I don't know, two, three cases of urgent care, but not that many, but now we're supposed to be in the new normal. But it's, as a very new acupuncturist, it's frankly quite terrifying and a little bit upsetting because I feel I have forgotten everything.
1: Yeah, I can can totally appreciate that. Um, But like everything, it's like riding a bike. You've studied hard for several years, you have a lot of clinical experience behind you as a student, and it is scary being out there on your own. Um, But one of the great things as as I've been involved as a teacher in a few different places, uh, LCTA, Southbank, the Confucius Institute, uh, and then being involved with uh, BARB a little bit, looking at standards and uh, being an external examiner, gives you an insight into other institutions. You know, the vast majority of places train acupuncturists to really quite a good standard. Um, Mm. You know, we all are never going to feel adequate when we leave university. Um, It's natural. But uh, looking from outside and having the benefit of having a few years under my belt now, um, I can reflect on how I felt when I first left and actually I can kind of say to you guys with confidence, actually, you know, guys, you've got a good foundation. Of course you're going to feel this way, but you have, a, you know, a good basic competency with, with your 400 hours of clinical training. You wouldn't have made it through there if if you didn't. But at the same time, because, because it's all about rhythm and we're creatures of habit and you're just getting into your stride and you're knocked out of your stride. It's going to be a bit like getting back on your bike. So the first month is going to be awkward and then once you find your flow, it will feel less of a struggle. And it, and it will be tough like anything in the beginning. When I first graduated, uh, it was 2006, and it was pretty much we were going into the early stages of a financial crash, and there was yep. gonna be a global recession, and it was gonna be 1928 all over again. And of course, we were all worried. It's not a great kind of way to leave university in debt, uh, trying to build a practice, or any kind of business, in potentially in those kind of circumstances. Uh, But as you were able to show in October, you were able to do it and you'll be able to do it again, Um, but it does take time and, and a little bit of patience. And I think with the nature of lockdown, I think people who have had a bit of acupuncture with you in the past and are kind of used to coming to see you are probably going to be much more likely to resume treatments sooner depending on their individual circumstances. Some may be shielding. Some, due to work and other commitments and homeschooling, may not be able to. And then the people who would come more probably infrequently may feel less confident to Mm. potentially go for that kind of a treatment at the moment. If they're going to leave the house, it's going to be for work, family, or to do shopping. And that's about it, really. Um, And then you've got other genuine emergencies. They genuinely don't really want to go to, you know, there's a six to 12 week waiting list at, for the physio. Um, yes. If they're already on quite a lot of pain relief and they're looking to see an acupuncturist, a chiropractor, an osteopath locally, I think there will be some of those too. But I think yes. unfortunately you don't have, uh, uh, you haven't been in your practice long enough to have a, an extensive list of people who've been coming to you for you know six months or so. But that will build back up in. In, in due
0: course. Well, interestingly, the urgent cases that I treated were um, anxiety cases. So I had um, two young men that had had panic attacks of such a magnitude that they ended in hospital. And they went to hospital. Imagine, in the middle of the lockdown, going to AE must not have been a fun experience they went to hospital, they had all sorts of tests, and the doctor said, you are having a panic attack. So they came for acupuncture because they said, I really, you know, I I, don't, I cannot go to an ENA. again. It's scary, but at the same time, I cannot live like this. So I think that, at least for me, I have seen an increase of cases of anxiety. And I think particularly people are so scared of getting out of the house that they're like, well, I I need to do something. And maybe they're on medication, but that's not quite cutting it. Um, There's a lot of insomnia that seems like the anti-anxiety medication is not even touching that.
1: I think... um... Yeah, absolutely. There's going to be, just as much as anything else, there's going to be really a high level of people who need a lot of uh, anxiety support, a lot of mental health support, really. Lockdown's been immensely tough for everybody um, for so many different reasons. And it's been tough for people with chronic health conditions and it's been tough for people who don't have any perceived condition just because it's been, it's thrown everybody's lives upside down. And as human beings, we... Basically, don't like feeling very vulnerable. We create all these routines and patterns to our lives, oh, yeah. which help us feel less vulnerable. And Corona has indiscriminately wiped all of them out. It's taken all those security blankets away, including our own. So, you know, we should, um, we can firstly empathize and be compassionate about that vulnerability because we've all felt it. Um, it's palpable. You know, you just open your door and it, it is there. And people are scared and yes you're right people aren't sleeping and they're incredibly frustrated um and people are also grieving uh, there's a lot of, there's a lot of loss yeah. out there and unfortunately um you know there is a lack of uh you know the NHS is doing its best to cope uh, in the current circumstances but if you like people with anxiety yes are just going to be given repeat prescriptions and if they're really struggling you know, they might be able to do some online consultations with their therapists, but acupuncture, as you know, can be incredibly valuable for them. And I anticipate seeing uh, a lot more people who have really got themselves quite worked up, whether that's manifesting in sleep, whether it's become a chronic pain issue, which is really emotional, really, and partially postural, as well as other, other things. Um, and I, I can't see that changing, because the uncertainties not gone away. <laughs> so, uh, you know, all we can do is encourage people to do their little routines, whether it be they use things like Headspace, whether it be that they tune into your yoga center's uh, uh, online video or something like that. And in between, do their gardening and come and get some treatment now that we're hopefully back home.
0: Yes, and I think actually what is interesting in terms of business, I was thinking about this because at least here in Crouch End, in North London, a lot of people traditionally, it's a place where a lot of people work from home. There are a lot of um, TV people, a lot of uh, journalists, and now even more people uh, working remotely from home. So I was thinking that for acupuncturists, this might be a good thing because these would be the people that would go into the city and either have um, an acupuncture treatment in Canary Wharf during the lunch break, which is not that likely, or they would be trying to get an appointment at 9pm with you back in Finsbury Park or Crouch-in. So maybe people now will go visit their local acupuncturists. That's my hope.
1: Well, yeah, absolutely. I mean, if you don't have to go into town and get on public transport, which is crowded, and as you know, end is a rat run because it's not on the tube, so it's it's a dash for the overground, it's a dash for either Highgate or Finsbury Park. Uh, it's crowded, it's congested, it's stressful. Anyone who can either go into work later or come out of work earlier, do an appointment on the way home, not have to squeeze it in, it's definitely uh, something that I think you you'll benefit from. And I think, uh, I I think, you know, in lockdown, we have seen that actually we don't need to all run around like crazy. Mm. We can survive. Like companies can let people work from home. What's the worst that's going to happen? You know, you only need to be in the office two days a week, uh, if, if that's your line of work, for example. So it'd be really interesting to see if we see a change in the work culture and whether that allows people a bit more freedom. Because certainly I would say, you, you know, from 2006 to say 2014, there was a beginning of a culture in the city of really flexi time. And um, for a lot of young professionals with young families, that was brilliant because it meant that they could pick their kids up, it means that they could do the parents' evening, and the next day they could stay and work later or, or whatever they'd have to do, or do a couple of hours from home or go in, log in on the weekend, whatever. But essentially, you were given a certain flexibility to kind of deal with your working hours. And I would say I noticed quite a difference from around 2014 15 onwards, where people just started going, Well, you know, I don't want to be that guy who's not at the desk. Mm. In, at, at, you know, because there's been so many people who have already been let go that I feel quite vulnerable doing that now. So it wasn't that they were discouraged from doing it, but people were like, Right, I'm only going to normally, if you offer me a slot at three in the afternoon and you told me that's your only slot for two weeks, I'd take it, but right now I'm feeling a bit vulnerable, so yeah. I'm going to take the slot in two weeks time after 6pm please, and knowing full well they're in pain, mm. and, I, and that, that I think just says everything, the fact that really not much changed, but they felt that they couldn't step out of work anymore, and I really hope that now we go back the other way and employers are. Or people are perceived not to be skiving off for doing something like that. Um, and as you know, many of the companies around Canary Wharf, Liverpool Street have uh, therapists working on site. So, And the idea is is that you don't lose any time for travelling. You go down, you have an osteopath do the correction, a couple of needles. Someone looks at your diet plan and then you're back at your desk within the hour very efficient, if you like. But does do you ever really get away from work? Then?
0: No, I, I used to work in such a place. I used to work for Goldman Sachs. And, um, you know, you go in there and there's a gym. There's a gym. The, the gym at Goldman Sachs had, Sports clothes that you could actually borrow, and they would launder them, and they had fresh sports clothes. So that you all, all you had to do was have your um, gym shoes under your desk and just yeah. head down. It's, and, pretty, it's pretty amazing. Yeah, and there was there was a canteen. Obviously, there was a GP, there was a dentist, there was an osteopath. <laughs> the end result is that you would easily spend fourteen hours in that office <laughs> every day.
1: It's I just yeah when you live in a city, uh, I think it's so important just to get outside even if it's just on your lunch break, you know just for a few minutes of the day just to change your environment, um, just to walk across the road, to speak to that random bloke who makes your sandwich every lunchtime. Those little interactions are incredibly important, and, and sometimes yeah when deadlines are up, we we'll at our desk and things we all have to do the things we do, but on a day-to-day level you I understand why they want you to stay at your desk and how it's perceived to be efficient, but actually in the art side of things and design side of things, I think it's more respected that people need to have a break from mm. their environment. They can't be the same and it doesn't matter if you stick a plant in it. Yeah. you know it's a plant it's a beautiful thing but it's, people just need to move. they need to get up and walk away, physically change things. It doesn't mean that they'll be less productive when they come back. Uh, necessarily.
0: They might be um, more productive because they've well, had ho- a
1: break. <laughs> hopefully. And, and and why not just give people the choice? Because let's face it, people are different. Huh? Mm. Uh, some people are going to be more productive one way, other people are going to be more productive the other way. Uh, why not give people the freedom to, to work out what works for them? Um, uh, hopefully.
0: So I was thinking about coming back and, you know, I have like a little acupuncture room and I see patients one-to-one and I've got it all figured out. I've got the PPE, I've got the disinfection in between patients. It's all a bit clumsy. I still cannot see too many people in one day because I'm still getting used to the new normal. But I was wondering about how multi-bed clinics are going to do because, you've got an extra level of complication, which is that you have several patients at the same time. Um, And if these clinics were finding it harder to reopen, I think that would make me really, really sad because I think low-cost acupuncture is such an important offer as well to have.
1: It is. um, I don't think... uh... I don't believe I've seen a great deal of guidance on multi blends at the moment because I think all the focus has been trying to get people back to basic practice, yeah. uh, whatever that might be. And so I, I could be mistaken because maybe in that I've just been so focused on on getting everything up to scratch in, in my clinic that I haven't actually I've just breezed past it. But yes, it is obviously a, more of an issue. Maintaining social distancing when you have several patients in the room is harder. But often these uh, multi-bed clinics take place in larger premises like community centres, church halls, where actually with a little bit of intelligent uh, common sense and risk assessment, you're gonna see less patients, you're gonna spread them out further, you're gonna stagger them coming in, you're gonna stagger them mm. going out, you're gonna have cleaning stations at every desk. Uh, it's possible to work in a responsible and affordable way. And unfortunately, you know, Gloves have gone up triple. Masks are 10 times what they were. And that's not going to change anytime soon. Um, the supply lines and the cost of raw materials have gone up. So we have to pass some of that cost on, maybe in a low cost setting or ask people maybe to make a donation towards the gloves and masks um, so that we don't have to raise the overall price. But you're absolutely right. You know, one of the things um, I really benefited a lot when I first left acupuncture. University, uh, as a young graduate, was volunteering and helping out multi-beds. Really, um, You know, Westminster made it compulsory to, for us to do some shifts at the Gateway, uh, which was part of Lambeth Hospital, um, which was an incredible facility, and we also did some observations in the NHS clinics, um, as well as we had our own body clinic as well. and. There are so many amazing projects in London which are desperate for support from young acupuncturists, and if you have a few hours or half a day a week, you get to basically practice the art you love, which means that you learn because you only learn through practicing. You know, reading is fantastic, but you got to practice.
0: Yeah.
1: Uh, and it, practice means seeing patients, and the frustrating thing is in the beginning, how do we see those patients? Because we're so desperate, we just want them. Yes. And one, one of the ways we want one of the ways going to get that. And fulfill that need is to, to volunteer and to go to places. Uh, so uh, at Bank we would off, we would send some of our graduates. Will be kindly taken up by um, St Joseph's Hospice, which is a palliative care centre in Hackney, uh, and they'll be supporting the cancer teams and uh, the outpatients there as well, uh, and they're the end of life care as well as a variety of different things. And you get to There's the Stepping Stones Project in Hackney, so many different projects um, where you can potentially uh, help out. And in doing so, you get to see a lot of patients in one day, which you probably wouldn't in your early private practice. And you also get to learn by seeing complex cases. Okay, the type of people who need a lot of acupuncture are usually, unfortunately, can't afford the type of fees that we may charge. they may be unable to work due to their health condition, and they may have layer upon layer upon complex presentation. Um, and this may be different to somebody who just comes in who's really stressed out because he's delivering yeah. a pitch to Goldman Sachs. I mean, <laughs> yeah. don't get me wrong; it's, it's it's stressful in his own context of his life, but it's a different stress. It's so you're getting to learn to you're getting to learn to see something different and how to help that person. Uh, who may not be otherwise be able to walk into your clinic and you also get to benefit from the advice of working with senior colleagues. You know, the camaraderie we have in our community is amazing. Um, Even just in lockdown, the way people have supported each other has been fantastic. Um, And of course, like anybody, we sometimes fall out with each other. (laughs) We're a a family after all. (laughs) But on the whole, it's been largely supportive. And, you know, most acupuncturists want you to learn. And when you're there shadowing them or helping them in in a multi bed clinic, you're going to learn loads.
0: Absolutely. I was volunteering at um, Consonant Services in Tottenham. Um, They had a once a month um, wellness or health clinic where um, they knew that I was a fresh acupuncturist, but I was paired with um, Stacey Chapman. I don't know if you know her. Mm-hmm. Um, she's great. And it was fantastic. As you say, I had her help. She was supporting me. And you had, I think we had, we went up to six people at a time, three each. You had to really work quite carefully around setting up your clean field. And obviously you couldn't undress people the way you undress them in in. in a a clinic with a couch so you have to be quite creative do a lot of hands a little bit of feet carefully it was a fantastic experience yes Uh, but unfortunately they've had to close down that service the economy seems to be (laughs) taking a hit
1: yes but i think there's going to be a lot of people who are going to need uh help getting back on their feet and a lot of them are going to be on a limited budget and there will be a lot of space for multi-bed uh provision going forward. Um, you know, the long-term effects of having post-COVID are yet unknown really. Mm. We're learning all the time. And hopefully, you know, some of these projects may be able to apply for some local sources of funding, council funding, as a external source of support for their local services by helping people. So let's keep our fingers crossed that um, those projects stay afloat and stay viable. They certainly provide an incredible Service to the community. Also, the NHS offers a lot of acupuncture and, and can sometimes be people's first experience of acupuncture. So, approximately around 70 or percent of NHS uh, pain clinics offer some form of acupuncture. Um, you've got physios doing acupuncture, you've got GPs, etc., etc., etc. So, hopefully, people should still be able to get some access. And if you have a little bit of time, um, you may still be able to volunteer in a variety of different settings really but certainly when I graduated it's something I love to do. I was able to talk to acupuncturists who graduated two to three years before me, get tips. Uh, yeah. I was able to talk to people who had been doing acupuncture for 20 to 30 years, Yeah. Um, you know, uh, and have a cup of tea and say right, you know, why did you put that needle there? Enlighten me. <laughs> yeah. um, and yeah it's an invaluable experience it's worth its weight in gold um, really because eventually little bit by little bit your patience will start building where the marks start spreading you get busier busier you look back over the years gone by and before you know it you don't have that time anymore to volunteer um, mm-hmm. because you've got too many patients of your own and rather than worrying about filling the space use your time to create wealth, is what I would say to to early graduates, you know, brush up on skills where you feel that you need to brush up on, read around things that you need to read around on, also rest, like seriously rest, like students are exhausted by the time they leave university. It's often not their first degree. They often have families, they often have jobs and studying, working, being a mum, being a dad, being a husband, wife, whatever, is exhausting. We will leave with spleen cheese <laughs> deficiency, and with a healthy dose of liver cheese stagnation, uh, maybe on the way to liver fire. The first thing I would say to a lot of people is it's okay to feel shattered. Okay, it's okay to pause and kind of lick your wounds for a second. You know, starting a business in anything, like I'm no businessman, I really, I'm really am not a businessman. But you talk to any of these Dragon's Den people, and they'll tell you, you know, the fundamentals are the same for any business. You've got to work hard. The first few years really hard. Breaking even is takes three to four years or two to three years, depending on your model. And if you're doing that and you've done that, you've actually done well. Most people don't survive the first two years, but it takes a lot of effort. So you need to fortify your chi and be resilient because you're going to have to invest in your business and yourself. Uh, to sustain that effort, so it means having a good yoga practice. It means kind of not trying to take over the world in one day, and having realistic expectations and humble expectations. But to grow organically, uh, and also to allow you to allow yourself time to grow.
0: Mm.
1: You know, we you know we have to grow in because we are our businesses ultimately, aren't we?
0: Yes, it's interesting because I remember when we started um, my my cohort of acupuncture, one of my lectures, I think it was um, Joanna. Joanna Atwell said, you are all going to end up with um, splinchy deficiency by the end of the course. And I remember thinking, nah, I used to work really long hours in a really demanding job. I can't do this. Well, she was right. She was absolutely <laughs> spot on. I was exhausted when I finished, and then I dived right into trying to build a business. And then what's happened to me during this lockdown is that I've actually stopped doing yoga for the first time in 15 years. I just haven't been able to gather the enthusiasm. Like, I get up, I do a little bit of breathing, a little bit of pranayama, I might do about sun salutations, and that's that. And... The conclusion I arrived at is not that I'm lazy, which is what I usually think of first. <laughs> it's just that I'm actually really exhausted. And these, I think this lockdown thing kind of highlighted how unsustainable sometimes our lifestyle is.
1: Yes, I mean, it's just typical, isn't it? It's we talk about balance, we learn about balance, and balance teaches <laughs> us many lessons <laughs> continuously. Um, and of course, we're—it's a—you know—it's—it's it's not this uh, magical thing. It's a constant thing we strive towards. And lockdown very much threw everybody out of balance. And it also, yeah, you're right. It for a lot of people, whatever your circumstances were, it gave the opportunity. It's like you know that typical thing that we see in our patients, and uh, you know the GUPs call it the holiday syndrome. This. Yes. So everybody gets to Spain and and then they get sick. terribly sick for the two weeks, and so then they come back and they're like, "What the hell? <laughs> I feel fine." It's because you know you 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 kind of get there out of sheer stubbornness out of your ji, your willpower keeps you going. Your yeah. that bit of your kidneys. There's really nothing in your kidneys, but that willpower keeps you going from a bit of jing. And then, when you finally stop and allow yourself to rest, and you, you feel you allow yourself to feel vulnerable for a sec, then obviously the true energetic exhaustion shows itself. And teachers feel it every time they stop at the end of term. Any of your any of your colleagues who are teachers, you know, we've all felt that. We feel it as lecturers. You know, you see us in September, we're still exhausted. <laughs> yeah, we only had two weeks off. By the time we finished marking the dissertations, yes, <laughs> yeah. It's OK to be exhausted. It, it's OK. And, and it's OK not to practice a, a little bit, because as, as a long time practitioner of Tai Chi, if I didn't practice uh, that way. I would feel pretty crappy and more often than not, I feel better when I practice. So mm. I generally always do. But uh, something I always tell students is sometimes it's OK to have a break. You, you know, it's about how you practice, not the practice. So, actually, doing little bits of pranayama and, and stuff like that is absolutely fine. What that's what your energy is asking for. It's asking for stability and nurture, not to be bounced around the place. So, you know, as one of my teachers would say, when when things are feeling turbid and a bit confused, just hold your center. Mm. You know, you don't have to do the dynamic practices because that's going to stir the, the silts. It's going to re-stir really the emotions make you feel more vulnerable actually. So what you need to do is actually just let all that go and focus on holding a bit of stillness. Um, and you can do that using a variety of different methods and rest. You know, yin-yang kind of balances. Yeah, we work really hard, put a lot into our patients, whether we have families. Uh, like you said, you have careers and we go going to study then, oh my God, it's career time again. So, it's like, and then we get 30 days holiday a year, but then when you're self-employed, do you give yourself 30 days holiday a year?
0: So How many
1: people. Not. <laughs> exactly. So another thing I was going to say, you know, it's just something to learn early. Like, you know, it's so tempting to say, I'm going to just work through my holidays because I've got a business to build, but make sure you have time off uh, so that you restore your energy, you return feeling nourished yourself and in turn can nourish others if if that's the way you want to work Um, because like in anything uh, you can get burnt out very easily you know we're holding a therapeutic space for from 9 in the morning till 6 7 in the evening can be very draining so it's okay to feel tired and to have a rest we, you're still superwoman, I'm still superman, but even superman needs rest. Yes. Uh, and like I say to my professional athletes, you know, you train six, five days a week, depending on your discipline. But if you don't get the adequate rest, you're actually becoming less efficient. You know, your musculature, everything is getting, you know, you might perceive it to be working better, but actually it's metabolic output has gone down. So we have to be taking our own advice sometimes. So it's okay to feel a bit exhausted and um, to wind back a little bit, and hopefully that will give you a springboard to spring back in a few weeks' time, feeling more motivated with gloves coming out of your sleeves everywhere, alcohol gel everywhere, um, and ready to take more patience and feeling rejuvenated for some of the challenges we'll face ahead, because undoubtedly they will be challenging. but. I think, you know, if people continue to do the things you did before and you let your passion for helping people and acupuncture show, people, of course, are going to come and and book with you. Let's keep our fingers crossed.
0: Yes, yes, it will be fine. I think it's just these last couple of weeks. um, It's a transition, right? So we were in lockdown. Now suddenly it feels like from moment to moment we are supposed to go from absolute lockdown to the new normal. And I think a lot yeah. of people cannot deal with that.
1: And, and, and what I would say is when I went back to work the first week, I literally just saw one or two patients a mm-hmm. day, I just worked half a day. And it took me half a day just to kind of remember to wipe everything and do everything. Now I'm getting the swing of it, I can turn the room around a lot faster if yeah. needed. But I'm, I'd am i rather see less people and just make sure that I'm getting everything done correctly and that yes. I'm satisfied with everything. And also that I'm not trying to do it all too fast because that's also exhausting. Because you're also doing it with a mask on and and extra clothes, and 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 as many people have commented, as you would have read, you know, know, in our rather strange humid summer that we're having, um, you sweat under there quite quickly, um, and so on and so forth. So it's hard when you're renting a room and you're paying maybe for the whole day, maybe over an hour, but give yourself a chance just to kind of, uh, it's like your first day in someone else's clinic. Like, okay, okay, they've put the couch roll here.
0: Yes. (laughs) And
1: the hand gel's over there. Like, because, like, you know, my clinic has been the same for nearly 15 years. And to facilitate you having to need to maybe cleanse your hands every time you leave the room and come back, let's say you wanna walk to the bathroom, patient wants to come back in, they might wanna wash, you know, I've had to move things, I've had to, but put other things away and move things around and it feels very strange. Um, but it's starting to feel a little bit more normal. But I'm sure, again, some of the changes I've made, thinking about them this week, I'm thinking, well, I could probably move that over there now. Mm. So I'm still going, uh, little bit by little bit, but it does feel less strange. Uh, the first few days, not too bad. And what's the most reassuring thing? Yes, we feel a little bit out of our comfort zone, but our patients are so happy to see us. Yes. Um, you know, they are, they've been waiting patiently. They've been struggling on so many different levels for so many different reasons. And many of them have had, maybe they would have had regular treatment over a period of time mm. in their life. So for some of them, they've never had this period of time where they've not had yeah. either an osteopath or a massage therapist or, you know, somebody to advise them, really. And so it's been incredibly testing for some of them. Um, and I think that will, boil, you know, when you see that, it naturally will lift your spirits. And the fact that you're sweating in places under <laughs> your mask, that you didn't know you were physically possible to sweat, you won't seem to mind anymore. The fact that, you know, you can't just uh, do a quick wipe down at the end of the day and think, right, I'll come back and do the rest of the morning. You can't do that anymore. Yeah. You just got to do it. Um,
0: leave
1: properly and it it can be done
0: okay I think Uh, hopefully. Yes it's just um, yeah it's all a bit of trial and error at the moment with all the PPE and but you know what I have found is that all my patients are really appreciative of all the care that we are putting into like they've seen you know they because you walk in and it's been it's very evident that the room has been disinfected to within an inch of its life. And there's no soft materials anymore, everything's wipeable and you're all masked up and they're sitting in one end and I'm sitting in the other to do the consultation. And they really appreciate it because I think they come back to acupuncture with a little bit of trepidation. And then when they see that really, we're taking the, the safety against COVID quite seriously, I think that helps.
1: Yes, I mean, I think, you know, it's, I I haven't come across this yet, thank God. But, you know, when when people go around saying things like the Wuhan flu, Mm. it's not great for acupuncture, is it? No. You know, I I mean, it's all kinds of wrong for all kinds of reasons. But just as for any acupuncturist, that's not good for us. It's going to make people feel like that's Chinese, isn't it? So it just adds another layer of why would you want to go to an acupuncturist under the current circumstances? I think in places which are quite cosmopolitan, it's not really too much of a problem. Mm. But, uh, yes, yeah, I, I, somebody did mention that to me the other day and said, you know, have you, have you found like Chinese restaurants business has gone right down? Oh, wow. They're like, they're like, you know, acupuncture, have you noticed anything? And I said, well, we will be closed. <laughs> uh, firstly, but, I said that's really interesting. I said, ask me in, a, in six months.
0: And now they found out anyway. They tested some water that they had in, you know, tested some really old water, like six months old or a year old in On Barcelona, butter. and they found out yeah. that it had COVID nineteen. So, who knows? Yeah,
1: it's in March. Yeah, that's for March. And, and yeah. I, th- I think the reality is, is, a lot of physicians from a lot of different disciplines from a lot of different areas say that although the symptoms exponentially exploded. They were seeing patients with certain some of yeah. these symptoms prior, um, and I wouldn't even be surprised if you, myself, or many other acupuncturists across London treated people with wind cold invasions that we thought were, mm. you know, because without a doubt, the viral season this year, before even the COVID kicked off, was pretty infectious, yeah. and it it was it was a bit abnormal, and I noticed. The levels of fatigue people were experiencing yeah. after having had a cold for two to three days was a little bit abnormal. But then there's also there's been a lot of crazy stuff going on in the world and people are tired, too. So I just kind of wrote it off as that. And then but now, actually, uh, when you start to add it all together, you know, it's quite possible that maybe not the exact same strain, but certainly it's probably been around longer. Um, and only time will tell. But yeah, there were people who went to all over the world and most of us will will never know until there's some Mm. kind of uh, clarity on testing. And so I think the only thing we can do is to do our due diligence and to assume that we have potentially may be asymptomatic, pre-symptomatic and that our patients may be either. And that the only thing we can do to protect our patients who are more vulnerable because again, yes, we have, people have fertility cases, they have the young sportsmen and the young professionals, but we also have a, such a broad spectrum of cases to, you know, the, the, your, the grandmother who's had breast cancer for the second time and she's literally just come out of chemo and she's shielding. We have to kind of be comfortable that we're doing everything we can to protect everybody. Um, and with the CDC's advice on most uh, infections are probably 40% are asymptomatic, Um, pre-symptomatic, having good protocols at work, um, and all of those kind of things that we've been discussing in the British Acupuncture Council and and other uh, acupuncture bodies have suggested, I think are going to be key to us having confidence to practice going forward for ourselves and our families, um, and to give our patients confidence as well. So I'm really glad that you've had good feedback from your patience and I hope that gives you more confidence going forward next week <laughs> little bit by little bit yes yeah.
0: I think I think our message today to the listeners is keep plugging in we will get through it
1: absolutely uh absolutely and and to remember to breathe
0: gotta yes. say that
1: sometimes <laughs> teacher the the ancestors would scold me um <laughs> so yeah absolutely and occasion and it's all right to also hold your breath occasionally but just remember
0: to breathe Yes, it's very um, good advice.
1: <laughs> yeah, well, when you're sitting there thinking, have I sprayed that for the 10th time? You might find you're holding your breath. <laughs> but if in doubt, spray it again.
0: Great. So thank you so much. It's been really good fun. And where could our listeners find you? They can
1: find me uh, in Finsbury Park and Tai Chi School. Previously, I used to do some mentoring for young acupuncturists. Um, nowadays I do a little bit less of that, but, but a lot of uh, graduates I used to work with uh, will come down and do Qigong seminars with us in uh, Finsbury Park. So one of the things we I used to do a lot of was uh, at Westminster, your formal education, that the hours on the course were intense, because uh, we're fitting in a lot of training. And then if you wanted to, you'd stay behind and after class so that me and my teacher would help uh, students learn more about the energetic side of things with gong and specifically the type of practices that were taught to acupuncturists to make them more sensitive to qi. Mm. Uh, so it kind of became something that I used to do with a lot of acupuncturists whether you went to Middlesex, whether you went to Kickham, we, we worked with a lot of different acupuncturists from all over and also how to understand how to protect your energy as you go into working mm-hmm. with more patients which is a which is another really interesting conversation. So I'm predominantly at Pinsley Park these days at the Seven Evans Clinic. And I'm also, the Tai Chi School is just downstairs. Uh, so I hope you're gonna come and visit me for tea. Uh, and I can give you, give you the tour. We're a non-profit organization, which, which means that we basically uh, put on our classes for the benefit of the community um, across North London. And then the clinic is upstairs. Um, and the door is always open and the kettle is always on. So, but the only thing is these days you've got to stay two metres back.
0: <laughs> That's okay. We can, we can have socially distanced tea.
1: <laughs> Fantastic. Uh, yeah. I very much look forward to it.
0: Thank you so much.
1: My pleasure. Thank you so much for having me.